Well, good morning. The Lord be with you. It's the way that I begin my classes. Uh, I'm a middle school Bible teacher. So where are my, my middle school and junior high students in the room? Or are they on the way out right now? You are my people. Go in peace. Um, or for those of you who are still in here. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, as I said, my name is Joel. I didn't say that. Uh, Sam said that. But um, I, I teach Bible at Minnehaha Academy. And I'm also a pastor of the Covenant Church. Our home congregation is Bethlehem Covenant, which is over in uh, South Minneapolis. Um, but this is the, uh, the second time I've been able to come and share God's Word with you as a congregation. I'm excited to be back, uh, thankful to be invited back, uh, and also just grateful to see some friends in the room as well. So, um, yeah, I uh, am here with my family. My wife, Megan, and I are celebrating 10 years of marriage this year, and we have um, two, 2.5 children, which is the American dream, right? We have Henry, who's almost five, Emma just turned two, and a baby boy coming in May. And I think last time I was here, Henry was, uh, was maybe three years old and wandered up onto the stage, but he's probably going to stay seated this time, so that's good. <laughs> um, but as our family grows, we're in the, in the midst of trying to figure out what our, our family traditions are going to be together. And, um, you know, we, a lot of things we import from our families, things that we grew up doing. And for both Megan and for me, Disney has been a big part of the family tradition. Last uh, spring break, we were able to go to Disneyland with Henry, and going to Disneyland with a nearly four-year-old was magical. Um, and we've got all of the, the movies and the books. Now there's Disney+, Plus, which is just like magic because it's reliving all of the movies that we grew up with. Uh, for Emma, it's like anything Frozen-related. Olaf was one of her first words. Um, and then Henry, you know, it's Cars or anything pixar um, and I saw that in a couple weeks, we've got the live-action version of Mulan coming out, which I'm really excited about, because the animated version of that was one of my favorites. Uh, this heroic story of a young Chinese woman who's fighting bravely for her family and for her country. And it's probably a good time to have some, some good news stories about China. Um, you know, that would be welcome these days. Uh, so I actually, I brought some, it's not news, but it's old news uh, that came out of China, and it has to do with this vase, which... Uh, we'll see up here. And uh, if you were at, at camp this summer, I shared about this vase a little bit, but don't spoil it. I want, to, I want it to be a surprise. Uh, this vase up on the screen dates from the period of the Emperor Qianlong, who reigned during the mid-1700s, uh, 1735 to 1796, at the height of the Qing dynasty. And the experts who looked at this vase after it was found um, saw it had an imperial seal and it was likely to have been made for one of the imperial palaces. So very Mulan-like. The vase has a narrow neck, and it's got these, these four circular enameled motifs, which are called cartouches, which is a fun fact about those. And um, they have colorful fish and flowers. And then there's these elaborate perforations all along the vase. And inside, there's this inner vase, just this masterpiece of pottery. And it was believed to have been fired in the imperial potteries, which are just west of modern-day Shanghai, and for a thousand years, that was the porcelain capital of China. So a piece of, of fine China, to be sure. Um, but the, the most interesting thing about this vase is that 10 years ago, it went up for auction, and somebody bought it for $70 million for a piece of pottery. So to someone, this beautiful, yet incredibly fragile piece of craftsmanship was worth that much, not to mention all the taxes and the uh, auction fees they had to pay on top of that. So with this vase in mind, I want us to consider the beginnings of Scripture in Genesis. Beautiful, 
fragile. Uh, And Genesis tells us the story of how God created this masterpiece of a universal scale. And he brought light and dark and sea and sky and earth and all life. And at the, at the pinnacle of, the, of this creation, the masterpiece of this creation was humanity made in God's image. And then we humans in our rebellion took this beautiful piece of handiwork that God made and we smashed it. We rebelled against God and we crushed it into a million pieces. That intimate face-to-face relationship that we had with God in the garden was broken, severed. But even in the first moments of that rebellion, immediately after the first humans broke trust with God, the first thing God did was pursue them, seek them out, call for them. Since then, God has been pursuing us and seeking us out and calling us back to him. And God has been putting the pieces of this fragmented, broken creation back together. Eventually, God chose one man and his family to be the beacon of that work of putting things back together, that restorative work. His name was Abram. So in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, the Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your relatives, and your father's house, And go to the land that I will show you. I will cause you to become the father of a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And I will make you a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham departed, Abram departed as the Lord had instructed him. And he was 75 years old when he left Haran. When I teach this part of Genesis to my sixth grade students, we usually break this promise down into three parts. There's nation, fame, and blessing. And so I ask my sixth grade classes, what does it take to have a nation? What do you need? And eventually we come up with land. You've got to have some place for this nation to live, and you've got to have people. You've got to start there. You've got to have babies. And Abram's 75 years old, and his wife Sarai is in her 60s, and it doesn't look like that's going to happen for them. So that becomes a bit of an issue for Abram and Sarai. But God says to them, I promise, this is my promise to you, nation, fame, blessing. But the next chapters of Genesis turn into a bit of a soap opera. But at his best, Abram believes that God will do that seemingly impossible thing. It's that belief and that trust that Abram has in God, that Paul eventually picks up later in the New Testament in the book of Romans. So our text that we're going to work from this morning is Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 and 13 through 17. And it says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What were his experiences concerning this question of being saved by faith? Was it because of his good deeds that God accepted him? If so, he would have had something to boast about. But from God's point of view, Abraham had no basis at all for pride. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God, so God declared him to be righteous. When people work, their wages are not a gift. Workers earn what they receive. But people are declared righteous because of their faith, not because of their work. And then skipping down to 13, 
It's clear then that, the prom- that God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was not based on obedience to God's law, but on the new relationship with God that comes by faith. So if you claim that God's promise is for those who obey God's law then, and think that they are good enough in God's sight, then you are saying that faith is useless. And in that case, the promise is also meaningless. But the law brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. So that's why faith is the key. God's promise is given to us as a free gift. And we are certain to receive it whether or not we follow Jewish customs if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in God, in the God who brings the dead back to life and who brings into existence what didn't exist before. Or to put that another way, the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Now, when I read Romans 4, I often focus on the first part, the contrast between faith and deeds, faith and works. Um, and that is what Paul is trying, or what, um, yeah, what Paul's trying to do at the beginning there. Uh, like, take verse 5. People are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And I tend to dwell there because I like to live up here. Um, I'm one of those sick and twisted people that really enjoyed school. I just loved it. And now I teach school. Um, so I like to, to stay in the head stuff. But Romans 4 has just as much to say about relationship about belonging. So where Paul ends up in verses 16 and 17 is to say, Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. It happens not because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life, or because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Abraham eventually did see the fulfillment of that promise that God gave to him before he left his homeland. He had a child with Sarah, and that child left, uh, Isaac, led to more children and to more children and eventually to this nation called Israel. But Paul's point here in Romans 4 is about, it's not about the bloodline of Abraham, but rather about his adopted family, his family who trust in the God who promises impossible things and then does them. Trust is what leads us to belong to this family and to that promise that God began with Abraham. It's not about bloodline, it's about belief. I know recently, as a congregation, you spent some time looking through the book of Ephesians, which is a really rich book in the New Testament, also from Paul. And it begins in Ephesians 1, verse 5, by saying, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Just like I said back in Genesis, God pursued the humans immediately after they rebelled against him. It's what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I realized as I looked, uh, I was 
prayerful and thinking, you know, God, what do you want me to bring to the congregation of Maple Grove Covenant this morning? And I kept coming to these passages, um, all three of which we've read now together, and I realized that, that Genesis 12 and Romans 4 and Ephesians 1 uh, all have to do with family. And maybe it's because we're expecting our, our next child, but, uh, and I have like baby on the brain, but for whatever reason, I just kept seeing this. Genesis 12, great nation, babies. Romans 4, Father Abraham, babies. Ephesians 1, adopted into God's family, babies. So our family is growing, but at the same time, God has been really challenging me to expand my understanding of what family even is. Blood family, church family. And as a church family, like I said, I belong, uh, a member over at Bethlehem Covenant Church. We're in this unique season of grappling with some really difficult questions and topics together as a congregation, and it's hard the way that Paul speaks of Abraham's family as a group of people seeking to be in the right relationship to God helps me, challenges me to expand that definition of family, to see my church congregation as a group of people seeking to be in the right relationship to God. And it reminds me, too, of the difficult things that Jesus says to us in the Gospels about family. In Matthew 12, there are some people who come while Jesus is teaching and they say, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are looking for you. Like, stop what you're doing. Get out there. They're looking for you. So Jesus responds and he asks, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And he pointed to his disciples and he said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And then later in Matthew 19, Jesus says, and everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is telling those who will listen that they might have to decide between their biological family and him. They might have to decide between their property and him. They might have to decide between friendships, brotherhoods, sisterhoods, and being faithful to him. But he, he says, he encourages by saying, if you give that up, if you have to give that up, you will get the church. You will get sisters and fathers and mothers and brothers a hundred times over what you have to leave behind. And you'll also get eternal life. So that's a nice added bonus there. But this is a challenge to me to redraw the lines of what family is and to expand those boundaries as Jesus challenges us to do, to recognize where God has drawn those lines. It challenges my often selfish habits of protecting Johnson family time at all costs. Like, oh, we got to protect family time. Like, can't do, can't do that church thing because family time first. When I, when I talk about Genesis 12 and, and God's blessing to Abraham, I often, with my students, talk about a paper cup, which hopefully will make sense in a minute. Uh, Abraham is the paper cup. And God says, I will bless you, pour into you blessing. But it's not so that Abraham can just be blessed. He says, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. So that, in fact, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. 
So Abraham, Abraham has to take the cup and he has to pour it out. Or maybe better yet, poke some holes in that cup so that it's always pouring out to the people around him. But that's an act of trust because I want my cup full. And if I pour it out, maybe there won't be any more for me. And I have to trust that God will continue to pour into me so that I can pour it out to others. And as I continue to pour it out, God is faithful to keep pouring it in. But it makes sense that we instinctively react and we, we hold the cup close and say, it's my blessing. I want this for me. And Abraham and his family did the same thing. Over and over again, God had to remind them, this blessing is not for you alone. It's for you to bless all the other nations, for you to show people what it looks like to live in the right relationship with me. Because that's real life. So this challenges me to see those in my church family as brothers and sisters, fathers and mother, uh, children, people to whom I belong, people who belong to me. When they grieve, I grieve. When they celebrate, I celebrate. When I'm lonely, they visit. It's a challenge to me and hopefully a challenge to us to realize that the waters of baptism really are thicker than the blood of family. But as much as this is a challenge, it's also really, really good news, especially to those in our churches and our congregations or those who haven't yet felt welcome into our churches and congregations because they don't have families of their own or feel like they belong. So for the many in our churches who, by choice or by circumstance, don't have blood family, do not have families of their own, then to those of you who do, I ask, what could you do to make a place at your table? Who might God be calling you to invite from your church family to be a regular part of your family? Ultimately, I'm just humbled that God has decided and chosen me and you and adopted us as his own children, called us his own. As we wait for this baby boy that's coming in May, we don't know anything about what he's going to be like. He's completely unknown. And that's the thing with biological children. You just don't know until they're there. And then they form their personalities, and hopefully they're, uh, they become a, a wonderful part of your family. But with adopted children, they are known they're out there already. You can see and observe and know about them, and they are chosen to be a part of the family. So God knew us. God knows us, the good and the bad, and has chosen us still. God has said, I want you to be part of my family. I want you to be my child. So when I think about the broken pieces, the things that I have shattered and broken in my own life, my mistakes. I know I'm the one that broke them. God knows I'm the one that broke them. And God wants me still. So let's go back to that Qianlong vase. Somebody decided that this piece of pottery was so valuable, so precious, they were willing to part with over $70 million for it. And it was perfect. It's, it's not cracked. It's not faded. And God sees you, and God sees me, and we're cracked, and we're broken, and we're faded. 
And God says, you are far more valuable. You are irreplaceable. You are loved. God called us his own while we were in our brokenness, while we were separated from him. But he didn't want us to stay there. He didn't want us to remain broken and hurting, fragmented. But he said, come, let me make you whole again, my child. Let me show you true life. Believe in my promise, God says, because this is the God who brings the dead back to life and who takes nothing and makes new things. Then just as God urged Abraham, he is going to urge us to go out, to share the blessing, to tell other people about this promise, and to continue to grow this family to all the families of the earth, to the ends of the earth. Would you pray with me? God, as we gather together as your people, your family that you have called, help us to know deep within our hearts, God, that you have chosen us, that you love us. And let us start from there. Let us start from a sense of belonging to you, knowing that we are loved and treasured by you. And God, we pray that that love would inspire us to throw wide our arms and to embrace those who do not yet feel part of a family, especially, God, those who don't yet feel part of your family. Help us to redefine what it means to be a family of believers, to be a body of Christ, and God, to be vulnerable enough to let others into what we so often protect for our own. We know that you will give us what we need to do this work, God. So we ask for your power and your strength and your boldness and that we would be able to share your love. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All God's people said, amen.